Disclaimer. In this chapter, I will be discussing the murder of multiple young girls and women. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning, so please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Well, hello. Thanks for tuning in. If it's your first time here, I usually have a co-host, but Bree is taking some time off, so it'll be just me telling the story. Our regular listeners know how much I dislike doing two-part episodes, but um, this is a long one, so unfortunately, it will be a two-parter. Because I'm on my own here, I will have to do part two as a regular release on Tuesday, but if you would like the episode early, there is a subscriber option to help support the show where you will get early access to part two tomorrow morning. Um, I think it's something like $3 a month or something. And I'm working hard to have bonus content for those subscribers, but writing and editing on my own is a lot of work. So please be patient and hopefully Brie will be back soon. Anyways, let's get into it. Is it possible to have a favorite serial killer? I don't consider this to be my favorite because the word favorite suggests that it's pleasant or a good experience reading and learning and even knowing about this case. But what I will admit is that Ted Bundy fascinates me and always has. Not his crimes specifically, but his mind and the way he lived a double life for so long. Um, Being one of the first well-known and documented serial killers... In fact, I believe he was the first killer to be coined as a serial killer. That term comes from a murderer who performs a series of killings. The actual definition and criteria of a serial killer is much more broad, but it did come about in the late 1970s when FBI agents John Douglas and Robert Ressler began interviewing these people who murdered multiple people and they left behind signatures or like recognizable behaviors during the crimes and at the crime scenes. We could do an entire episode on that topic, but I think for now that'll do. I think the best way to start telling Ted's story is to go back to the very beginning with his mom. Eleanor Louise Cowell was born on September 21st, 1924 in Philadelphia County, Pennsylvania. Her parents were Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. She was only 22 years old when she gave birth to her son, Theodore Robert Cowell, on November 24, 1946, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Eleanor was told to give the child up because of the shame associated with a child born out of wedlock. That shame would not just be pinned on her, but also to her, her family. Ted remained there for two months after his birth. His mother considered placing her baby up for adoption, but her father, Sam Cowell, wanted the baby to join the family in Philadelphia. Once there, Ted Cowell began life thinking that Louise was his sister, not his mother. At first glance, the Cowells were a normal family, but Ted's grandmother suffered from depression and agoraphobia, which as we know, is a fear of leaving the house. His grandfather has been described as having a raging temper. His violent acts touched everyone from cats and dogs to employees and family members. Some Bundy experts have theorized that he was the result of Louise being raped by her father, though she said she was seduced and abandoned by a war vet. I'm going to add here that after his execution, 
A DNA test was reportedly performed to try and determine if Ted was the product of incest, and those results seem to prove that this rumor is completely false. Ted may have experienced physical or psychological abuse at the hands of his grandfather, despite his later insistence that the two had a great relationship. Ted's behavior did become disturbing, according to some family members and even some childhood friends. On at least one occasion, one aunt woke up to find her toddler nephew placing knives near her sleeping body. She later told Vanity Fair, quote, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything, unquote. In the same Vanity Fair article, Dr. Dorothy Lewis, experienced psychiatrist who we have talked about before in the Gannon Stock episode, gave her opinion that such actions would occur only in very seriously traumatized children who have either themselves been the victim of extraordinary abuse or who have witnessed extreme violence among family members, unquote. I'm not trying to discredit Dr. Lewis, but I would take that opinion with a serious cup of salt, not just a pinch, an entire cup, honestly. His whole family was not mentally okay. Louise Cowell and her younger sister had worrisome tendencies, where Mrs. Cowell, Louise's mother, suffered from the debilitating depression and was treated with electroconvulsive therapy. Ted's grandfather, Sam, was belligerent, and he was an alcoholic who was well-known throughout the city for his violent behavior. When Ted was only three years old, he and Louise left Philadelphia for Tacoma, Washington. So as to not draw attention to her son's illegitimacy, Louise gave Ted the last name of Nelson before the move. But moving was still upsetting to the young boy. He missed Philadelphia and initially didn't care for the Seattle area. And he became even more upset when his mother met and got involved with Johnny Bundy, an army hospital cook. Louise and Johnny got married in 1951. Jealous of his mother's new relationship, Ted had a deliberate public tantrum at Sears wetting his pants as part of the display. This didn't keep Louise's new husband from adopting Ted and giving him the name that would become so notorious years later. Relations between Ted and his stepfather were always tense. Ted seemed to be materialistic, wanting expensive clothing and belongings that his working-class stepfather could not provide. Ted fantasized about being adopted by popular Western stars like Roy Rogers or Dale Evans because they could give him the things that he wanted. As Ted grew older, he hated his stepfather's intellect. He always looked at his stepdad with disdain, like he was low class, not worthy, and beneath him. Friends witnessed him provoking his stepfather, who would sometimes strike out at Ted in frustration. There were far less tensions between Ted and his mother, who always made sure he was physically cared for, so her attention was divided. After Ted's capture, he expressed feelings of being unloved, though he voiced an appreciation that his mom paid all the bills. Ted would always claim that his illegitimacy was never a big issue to him. When he found out, it was dealt with, but he had no ill feelings towards his mother as a result. Ted always claimed that he had an uneventful, normal, loving upbringing in a good Christian home. As a child, though, according to family and friends, Ted lacked the social graces he would later use to charm people into believing he couldn't possibly be a killer. In conversations with a killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, Sandy Holt, who grew up with Ted, shared that he was teased for having a speech impediment and that he couldn't keep up with his fellow Boy Scouts. Later, in an interview with the FBI, Ted would speak about the claims made by Sandy Holt, 
where he said this person was not being honest. He did not do the things she claimed he would do, such as jump out of the bushes to scare people, dig holes and place spikes in the holes, and enjoy watching kids fall into the holes, cutting their legs on spikes. Ted actually scoffed at these stories, saying, quote, that's never been my thing. I'm not a bush dweller, unquote. I don't know, Ted. I feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Though Ted wasn't a bad athlete, he didn't make his school basketball or baseball teams a failure that was difficult for him to deal with. In high school, he was a loner who went on only one date. He later explained, it wasn't that I disliked women or were afraid of them. It was just I didn't seem to have an inkling as to what to do about them. Ted did do well in school, though. Interviewed in prison in Florida, he said that while in class, your performance is measured by different rules than what happens when everybody's peeling off into little cliques down the hallway. Ted's childhood also contained many moments of normalcy. He had a few good friends and took jobs like delivering newspapers and cutting lawns. He went to church with his parents and became the Methodist Youth Fellowship's vice president. Notably, considering what he would go on to do, he ended up saving the life of a friend's niece when she was drowning. Ted enjoyed the old detective magazines with gore-filled depictions of rape and murder. He may have started looking at pornography long before he was a teenager, as it's possible he accessed his grandfather's collection while living in Philadelphia. Ted would sometimes masturbate inside closets at his junior high school, getting doused with water when his classmates caught him. How embarrassing. Ted was young when he began breaking the law. He was a good skier, but he shoplifted ski equipment he wanted because his parents couldn't afford it. In addition, he forged lift tickets in order to hit the slopes for free, and as a teen, he attempted car theft. He received a warning as punishment for that. Most disturbingly, Ted became a peeping Tom who spied on strangers, which is obviously a precursor to sexual violence. So in 1961, eight-year-old Anne-Marie Berg disappeared and is suspected of being Ted's first victim. He would have been just 14 years old at the time. Eight-year-old Anne lived only five blocks away from the Bundy family home, and there's no question that Ted knew of her. Not only did she live in his neighborhood, but she had taken piano lessons from Ted's uncle Jack Cowell for two years. No doubt Ted had seen her around while working his paper route and recognized her as his uncle's student. There have been accusations against Ted based on some of the things he admitted to FBI investigator Bill Hagemeyer that involved having committed a crime too close to home that it was something he refused to discuss due to the identity of the victim. However, without further information, we can't know whether Ted was talking about Anne or about any other missing person from his younger years. Something I find interesting is that Ted abducted at least one of his early victims from her home, which was Linda Healy, we get into that a little bit later, in a similar way that Anne was kidnapped. During the early morning hours of August 30th, little Anne Marie Burr vanished from her family's two-story home. Her mother recalled that her daughter had gone into the bedroom earlier in the evening, later returning to her own bed. By 5.30 in the morning, the child was missing. Her parents discovered the front door was slightly ajar and noted that the living room window was open. Despite an area-wide search for Anne and various suspects questioned by police, neither an arrest was made nor was her body found. Though he seemed like a likely suspect years later, 
14-year-old Ted wasn't initially suspected of the crime. He was only suggested as a suspect after he was in prison and officials realized that he had lived only five blocks away from her at the time of her abduction. Police figured that her kidnapper's quick, silent moving throughout the house showed a familiarity with the layout of the home. The family kept a first-floor window cracked to let the night breeze in. The abductor had pushed the Burr's garden bench beneath the window for leverage. Climbing through the window, he didn't realize he left a damp imprint of a size 6 or 7 shoe print on the bench, nor did he feel the window jam catch a thread from his red shirt. Quietly, he slipped up the stairs to the room where the little girl slept. He carefully woke her and took her hand, leading her down the stairs without alarm or worry. She most likely knew her kidnapper and wasn't afraid. He unlocked the front door and removed the safety chain before leading Anne out the door and she was never seen again. However, Ted always denied having anything to do with the killing of little Anne, but he always tried to distance himself from his crimes against his young victims. After graduating in 1965, Ted spent a year at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma. He transferred to the University of Washington in 1966. He would go on to major in psychology as an undergrad. Sounds a little like Brian Kohlberger? I don't know. Ted initially wanted to major in Chinese and then urban planning, but ultimately settled on psychology. It was during this time, around actually 1969, that he met his longtime girlfriend, Liz, who he dated for years, um, six years actually. Um, but he graduated with distinction in 1972 with a psychology degree from the University of Washington. Ted would go on to attend law school at the University of Utah. However, by this time, he was already committing his horrific crimes and ended up dropping out of law school. So before dating Liz while in college, Ted met and started dating a woman who he had always felt was out of his league. He did his best to impress her and keep her happy, but eventually the woman broke up with him. It's widely stated that this breakup is what triggered his violent acts. Some say the way she did her hair is the same as most of Ted's victims. Again, in an FBI interview, Ted addressed this by saying that the breakup was difficult, but like any other man who got dumped, he moved on and met someone else. He denies that this situation had anything to do with the crimes he would go on to commit. So in January of 1974, Bundy's first known sexual attack happened when he broke into the apartment of Karen Sparks, a University of Washington student, while she slept. He beat her before sexually assaulting her. Though she was in a coma for 10 days following the attack, she survived but has lived ever since with permanent disabilities. In February 1974, roughly a month later, Ted committed his first known murder. He broke into the apartment of Linda Ann Healy, who I mentioned earlier, who was another University of Washington student, beat her, and then abducted her. Her remains were later found on a Taylor Mountain site where Bundy had left multiple victims. Throughout the rest of 1974, while still at school, Ted would go on to commit at least seven more murders throughout Washington and Colorado, or seven murders that he confessed to, though there could be others. March 12, 1974, Donna Gail Manson, who was 19 years old, was abducted while walking to a jazz concert on the Evergreen State College campus in Olympia, Washington. Bundy ended up confessing to her murder, but her body's never been found. 
On April 17, 1974, Susan Eileen Rancourt, who was 18, disappeared as she walked across the Ellensburg Central Washington State College campus at night. On May 6, 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks, who was 22, vanished from Oregon State University in Oregon while walking to another dormitory to have coffee with friends. On May 25, 1974, 15-year-old Brenda Barker ran away from home in Redmond, Washington on June 17, 1974. On June 1, 1974, Brenda Ball, who was 22, disappeared from located in Washington. George Ann Hawkins. She was 18 when she disappeared from behind her sorority house, Kappa Alpha Theta, at the University of Washington. I think that George Ann's murder is one of the most like famous of Ted's murders for a number of reasons. On the night of June 10th, 1974, George Ann had gone to a party on campus with a friend where they did drink, but they didn't stay for too long. George Ann left the party early because she needed to study for an upcoming Spanish final. On the way out of the party, she parted ways with her friends, saying that she wanted to go visit her boyfriend and say goodnight. Though George Ann was apparently a cautious and careful person, she felt safe walking on the campus. It was brightly lit, and there were almost always other people around. Plus, George Ann's boyfriend was a member of Beta Theta Pi, a fraternity whose house was not far from her sorority house. She made it to see her boyfriend around 12.30 a.m., and she hung around with him for about half an hour to an hour before leaving to head back to her own room for the night. The last person known to have seen George Ann was a Beta Theta Pi fraternity brother named Duane. He heard the back door of the frat house shut, so he stuck his head out to investigate when he saw Georgian, he called out to her. They chatted for a few minutes before Georgian continued her walk home. No definitive sign of Georgian Hawkins has ever been seen since. So the Bundy connection in this case is straightforward and clear cut. Ted confessed in disturbing detail to the abduction and murder. According to Ted, he used his favorite tactic of faking an injury and asking for help when he was approaching Georgian. He claimed that he approached her on crutches and asked her to help him carry his briefcase to his car. Georgian, being the kind of helpful person uh, that she was known to be, agreed. Georgian knelt into the car and placed the briefcase where Ted asked her to. While she was in this vulnerable position, he hit her over the head with a crowbar, rendering her unconscious. Ted then put her fully into the car and left the University of Washington campus done but I think well let's uh, let me start with one let me start this way um, the unidentified remains uh, um, this is where I'm a little bit uh, the presence of the officers down here is a little bit unnerving uh, some of it some of the stuff I don't mind talking about because they wouldn't know from Adam but I but names I will I can write it down or I can whisper it to you or whatever I just don't want the police getting any kind of names at this point well, you can, can you hear that? I can hear it, yeah. Okay. I just wrote, I just said that the Hawkins girl's head was severed and taken up the road about uh, 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. 
Yeah, but I, not anything you would have found that I know of. If you'd, uh, you would have found it, probably you would have found uh, damage to the head, the jaw in particular, probably broken. But if you'd found that, you would have known who it was. But anyway, I don't know. Right. Is there any reason you're asking that question? Uh, I was <clears throat> moving up. So that was disturbing. Ted said that he returned to the abduction site the next morning, or sorry, the next day, and just feet away from investigators, found Georgianne's earrings that he had knocked out of her ears when he attacked her. He picked them up and searched for anything else that was left behind, which he said uh, one of her white patent leather clogs were left behind. He got into his car and drove away. And just a little side note here, Ted removed the heads of at least 11 of his victims. Some reports even said that Ted confessed to make, having taken the heads with him and that he would apply makeup to their faces and perform sex acts on them. He also would return to the dump sites of a number of his victims and perform necrophilic acts on his victims' remains. He actually suggested to investigators later that he thought that the Green River killer, who at that time was still unknown, probably would do the same thing. The police did speak to Ted at length about his opinions on the who Ted called the Riverman. Um, it's pretty well documented through the work of the detective Bob Keppel. But anyways, moving on. July 14, 1974, was a day at Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, Washington, where Ted struck twice. Janice Ann Ott was 23 at the time. When she disappeared from Lake Sammamish, she lived in Issaquah and worked as a caseworker at the Youth Services Center. Before she left on her yellow bicycle, she put a note on the door for her roommate to say that she was just going sunbathing and drew a sun on the note. Her husband James was attending medical school in California. Two witnesses reported seeing her with a young man whose arm was in a cast. Denise Marie Nasland, who was 18, also disappeared from Lake Sammamish State Park. She was there with her boyfriend and another couple and went missing after she went to the bathroom. She lived in Seattle and was studying to become a computer programmer. Her mother said she had the kind of helpful nature that would place her in danger. Ted spotted Janice relaxing on the beach and decided to approach her. Moments before, he had attempted to lure another woman named Janice Graham away from the park. After introducing himself to Graham and claiming that his arm was injured, he asked her if she could help him unload a sailboat. Thinking that the boat was in the parking lot, she agreed and proceeded to follow him. However, Graham refused when she realized that he wanted her to get into his Volkswagen. He apologized and said that he should have mentioned the boat was not at that location, and Graham moved on. And so did Bundy straight to Janice Ott. After approaching the 23-year-old, Ted employed the same ruse. He explained that his arm was injured from playing racquetball and that he needed someone to help him unload his catamaran boat. However, this time he modified his story and claimed that the boat was at his parents' house in Issaquah. From his perspective, he probably wanted to avoid another situation where his victim suddenly backed out. Although Janice was friendly towards Ted, she did display signs that she didn't really want to leave the beach. According to onlookers, he was pretty insistent. Judging by witness accounts, the following conversation took place after Ted introduced himself and explained that he needed help. Note the parts of this conversation are probably missing, 
as it's based on the recollection of people who were sitting within like earshot. So Janice said, well, sit down and we can talk about it. And Ted said, well, it's up at my parents' house in Issaquah. Janice says, oh, really? I live in Issaquah. Well, okay. I don't know how to sail, though. Ted says, it'll be easy for me to teach you. And Janice goes, is there room for my bicycle in the car? And Ted says, yes, it'll fit in the trunk. At this stage, Janice started to put her clothes back on and said, okay, I'll go under one condition. I get a ride in the sailboat. And Ted says, of course, my car is just over there in the parking lot. And Janice said, I guess I get to meet your parents then. As the pair were walking away together, Ted asked Janice if she knew anyone in Issaquah. That was the last time anyone saw her alive. Later that same day, around 4 p.m., Denise told her friends who she was at the beach with that she was not feeling well, and she got up and walked toward the restroom area. Her boyfriend became worried when Denise did not return and ended up reporting her missing to a park ranger. The police did become involved and an investigation started. There were roughly 40,000 people at the beach that weekend, but police were able to get a composite sketch of the suspect and found out through witnesses that the man seen with Janice and witnesses at the restroom reported seeing a man of the same description talking to Denise, introducing himself as Ted. Little else came from the investigation other than the Volkswagen Beetle that Ted drove, but the witnesses mistakenly reported it to be gold in color. On September 6, 1974, two grouse hunters discovered their skeletal remains scattered across a grassy patch of land in a wooded area near Issaquah. So let's get back to the timeline. September 2nd, 1974, unknown teenage hitchhiker in Idaho, um, Ted confessed to this murder, but no remains were ever found and the investigators don't even know who he was talking about. On October 2nd, 1974, Nancy Wilcox, 16 years old, disappeared in Halliday, Utah. Nancy was last seen riding in a yellow Volkswagen bug near her home on Arnett Drive in Halliday. She went out to buy a pack of gum and has never been heard from again. She was a student at Olympia High School and a cheerleader when she vanished and very active in her Mormon church. Ted stated that she was never in his car, however, he confessed that he abducted her at knife point, sexually assaulted her in a nearby orchard, and strangled her. He said he buried her body near Capitol Reef National Park, over 200 miles from the site of her disappearance, and her body's never been found. On October 18, 1974, 17-year-old Melissa Ann Smith was abducted uh, shortly after she left the parlor on West Central Street in Midvale around 9.30 p.m., one unconfirmed report suggests that he may have been asking women in the area to assist him with a car issue. Melissa was the daughter of Midvale Police Chief Louis Smith. Her murder took place just 16 days after Nancy Wilcox vanished from a nearby city of Halliday. On the night of her disappearance, Melissa was supposed to be staying at a friend's house. However, those plans fell through after her friend failed to answer the phone. After realizing that she had been stood up, she decided to leave the parlor and walk back to her home on Fern Drive. Sadly, she never made it that far. At some point during her journey, Ted managed to intercept the teenager and snatch her off the street. Nine days later, two deer hunters discovered her naked remains on a hillside in Summit Park. She had a men's blue nylon sock tied around her neck. An autopsy report showed that she had also sustained multiple head injuries. Ted had raped, beaten, and then strangled the high school girl to death. Afterwards, he dragged her body down this hillside and dumped it face down in some scrub oak. 
The site was 23 miles from the pizza parlor where she was last seen. On October 31, 1974, 17-year-old Laura Amy disappeared from a Halloween party at Leahy, Utah. Almost a month later, on November 26, two hikers discovered Laura Amy's naked body on the side of an embankment in American Fort Canyon in Utah. According to investigators, Laura's attacker beat her, raped, and sodomized her, and then strangled her to death. Shortly before his execution in 1989, Ted Bundy indirectly confessed to the crime, by not denying it. What a shithead. On November 8, 1974, Carol DeRange was kidnapped by Ted. Ted approached Carol in a Utah shopping mall. She was looking through books at Walden Bookstore and looked up to see Bundy standing next to her. Ted, who was posing as a police officer, asked her if she had parked her car near the Sears store entrance, which she had. He then asked her for her license plate number He pretended to recognize it and told her that he had received a complaint that someone was trying to break into her car. Concerned, Carol followed Ted out of the mall and checked her car. She assured him that nothing was missing and that she wanted to go back into the mall. Ted asked her to ride with him in his car and make a formal complaint at the police station. When Ted took her to his VW bug, Carol had instincts that something was wrong, so she asked to see a police badge which Bundy flashed his wallet, and she saw only a bit of gold badge. She didn't even have time to see the name or the department. She debated whether or not to get into the car with him, but he was impatient, and she finally got into the passenger seat. However, she did not buckle herself into the seatbelt because she could smell alcohol on his breath. Once in the car, Ted drove a few miles down the opposite direction of the police station. He stopped in front of the Macmillan grade school. Carol asked him what he was doing and got no answer, so she reached for the door handle and tried to escape. Ted caught her right wrist into a handcuff and tried to cuff the ref wrist, but only got the right one on. Carol struggled with Bundy and was screaming while hitting and scratching him. He pulled out a gun and threatened her that if she did not stop screaming, he would blow her brains out. She fell out of the car and he dropped the gun and grabbed a crowbar. She used all of her strength that she had and fought the crowbar away and kicked Bundy right in the balls. She was able to break free. Carol ran into the street to stop the first car she saw, and the people in the car were Wilbur and Mary Walsh. She frantically attempted to get into their car, and when they saw it was a young woman, they let her in and drove her to the Murray Police Department. She then told police about the horrible experience. She was also able to give a description and information on the crowbar that she had felt with her hand and the most vital evidence she had with her, the handcuff, still attached to her right wrist. With the escape of Carol, Bundy was so angry and more frustrated, later that same night he kidnapped 17-year-old Debbie Kent, who was never seen again. Shortly before his execution, Ted confessed to investigators that he dumped Debbie's body at a site near Fairview, Utah, An intense search of the site produced human uh, kneecap, which matched the profile for someone of Debbie's age and size. On January 12, 1975, Karen Campbell was with her fiancé, Dr. Raymond Godowski, and his two children in Colorado. Karen hoped she could enjoy the break away from work and spend more time with the children while her fiancé attended a seminar. While relaxing in the lounge of her hotel with her fiancé, his son, and daughter one night, She realized she had forgotten a magazine and returned to her room to retrieve it. Her fiancé and the children waited for her to return. He knew she was a bit ill that night and went back to the room to see if she needed help. Karen was nowhere in sight. 
In fact, she had never made it to the room. By mid-morning, confused and worried, Godowski informed the police of her disappearance. They searched every room in the hotel but found no trace of Karen. It was later determined that Ted Bundy had abducted and killed her. Her frozen and decomposing body was discovered on Monday, February 17, 1975, on the south side of Owl Creek Road, just west of the Sinclair Summit, which was within 100 miles from where Karen was last seen. On March 15, 1975, 26-year-old Julie Cunningham disappeared while on her way to a nearby tavern in Vail, Colorado. Ted confessed to investigators that he had buried Julie's body near Rifle, Colorado, but a search did not produce remains. On April 6, Denise Oliverson was 25 years old when she was abducted while bicycling to visit her parents in Grand Junction, Colorado. Ted provided details of her murder, but her body was never found. While in prison, Ted confessed to Colorado investigators that he used crutches to approach Cunningham after asking her to help him carry some ski boots to his car. At the car, Ted clubbed her with his crowbar and immobilized her with handcuffs, later strangling her. On March 2, 1975, the skulls and jawbones and no other skeletal remains of Bundy's first five murder victims, which were uh, Linda Ann Healy, Susan Rancourt, Roberta Parks, and Brenda Ball, were found on Taylor Mountain, just east of Issaquah. Because Ball was not a college student and had disappeared from a bar rather than a campus, investigators had not initially believed her to be one of the Ted victims. Later, they would discover that she she had been seen dancing at the flame on the night of her disappearance with a man that matched the Ted description, including the sling on his arm. Years later, Ted claimed that he also dumped Donna Gail Manson's body there, but no trace of her has ever been found. Lynette Culver Lynette was born on July 31, 1962 in Renton, Washington. I can't find her mother's name, but we know her father's name is Edward. Lynette was the youngest of three children, though one of the children passed away before Lynette was born. The Culver family moved to Idaho in 1967 when Lynette was only five years old. By all accounts, she was a happy child with no known issues. She was a little shy until she was comfortable with someone. She had a good relationship with her parents and her older sister. In 1975, she stood around 5 foot 2 and weighed about 110 pounds. She had brown hair, hazel eyes, and she was in the 7th grade at Alameda Junior High, where she maintained good grades and had a budding social life. The only negative thing that I've come across in my research about Lynette is that she had a small habit of skipping school. On May 5, 1975, Lynette left her junior high during the lunch break. She had not mentioned any plans to leave school to anyone that we know of, though this is not necessarily strange as Lynette had a habit of cutting class. We don't know where she went that afternoon, but a few hours later she was seen getting on a bus at Hawthorne Junior High. The two middle schools are just over a mile away from each other for reference. Um, The bus was headed to Fort Hall, roughly 10 miles north of Tello. It is unknown why Lynette would have been headed to Fort Hall. This is the last substantiated sighting of Lynette. She was last seen wearing a burgundy jacket with a fur hood, a red checkered shirt, and jeans. The investigators initially, and this will come as a shock to precisely no one, considered Lynette a runaway. They had an unsubstantiated report that Lynette was last seen at a local Indian reservation. 
Other cryptic tips uh, reinforce the idea that Lynette had run away from home for unspecified reasons, but not a single one of these tips were backed up with any evidence. They seemed to be coming from people that just wanted the attention from being involved in an investigation, but as time wore on and the Culver family did not hear from Lynette, the idea that foul play was involved in her disappearance became more and more probable. Her family knew that Lynette would not and could not have stayed gone for so long without contacting them. Even as the case grew cold, the family did not lose hope. Lynette's father would fly to the location of any reported sightings of Lynette to investigate the area himself. Lynette's grandfather would return to Alameda Junior High again and again to search for clues that would shed even the slightest light onto what happened to her. They never, ever gave up hope. Ted confessed to Lynette's murder shortly before his 1989 execution. He made his claims to um, Robert Keppel, who was kind of famous to true crime followers for his involvement in the Bundy case, as well as the Green River Task Force. He believed Lynette's abduction to be connected to Ted Bundy. Bundy claimed he abducted Lynette and took her to a room at a Holiday Inn where he raped her and drowned her in the bathtub. He said he dumped her body in a river. He provided details about Lynette's life that only she could have told him. Lynette was just 12 years old. This is one of his lesser-known victims, but so important to tell her story. He claimed he drove to Pocatello, Idaho, with the intention of finding a young woman to murder. He came across Lynette at some point and abducted her. He then claimed to have taken her to his hotel room, raped her, drowned her, and then drove to the nearby Snake River where he disposed of her body. While Ted did not know his victim's name, Lynette's missing persons case was the only one from Pocatello that fit Bundy's description. He claimed to have known that his victim's family had recently moved across Pocatello, which is not something that someone who hadn't spoke to Lynette or her family would have known, unless they'd been observing the Culvers for an extended period of time, which we know Ted wasn't too interested in learning about or studying his victims before striking. And that is where we're going to leave it for part one. Um, In part two, we're going to start talking about Ted's first capture, his escapes from prison. And yes, I said escapes, plural. And uh, we'll go through his trials and some of the stories right up until his execution. So again, if you want the episode early, there's the subscriber option. And if not, I will see you on the next chapter. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Join our Facebook page for pictures and updates on cases we've covered and breaking news stories. If you have case suggestions or requests, send us an email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com or on Facebook Messenger. You can follow on TikTok and Instagram for related content, and I will see you next time.